Okay, let's try this again. I'm Brian Fierce. And I'm Rebecca Caho, and you're listening to Rural Roots. You're also listening to a pretty terrible head cold that I have brewing here. So my apologies for the nasal tones. Rural Roots is a show produced here at the Harris Center in St. John's, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador out of Memorial University. And the question that we ask is, what is rural in the 21st century? And today, you just actually keep that call to yourself. I'm glad there's about <laughs> two meters between us, and I'd like to keep it that way. I hate uh, to say it, Boyan, but our offices are too close. <laughs> oh, and there's another three people in the office who have had cold, so uh, we're probably not going to get away with this one. Can't spread over the radio, though. Uh, that's true. So you guys are safe. Okay, today we are taking you out into the woods. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day just outside Harrop in British Columbia. The smell of cedar is in the air and there are big birds of prey swooping around overhead. There are also wasps, but you don't have to worry about that either. So let's take a listen. Sure. Know what that is? Yeah, that's the sound of maybe, is it a circular saw? I'm not even sure. Table saw? I don't know. It's a big saw. (laughs) Anyways, that was pretty much the sound in the air, along with singing birds, um, when we visited the Hare Proctor Community Forest's sawmill back in September. And today we are going to talk quite a bit about the concept of community forest, which was somewhat new to me, and I would imagine to a lot of our listeners who don't live in forestry areas. But before we actually dive into this episode, I'm going to play a little a short clip um, from Foras Disehoff, who is one of the workers um, at the uh, Haro Proctor Community Forest Mill. And uh, I just want to give you a kind of how our listeners a taste of what it was like to be there and what this place looks like. Great. Um, so here is Foras. It's hard to describe it. Here's all the low grade kind of wood that we have. So all the fencing, and this is all cedar. It's kind of what we have here. So any one by six or anything like that. It's all the rough cut stuff, right? And then we have some lower grade decking here as well, but that's usually what we keep just for the, you know, kind of the bad wood kind of thing. Uh, it all comes from here, from Harrop Proctor. So uh, it's one logging road, go Victor Road. That's where the logging right now. Okay. I think in the back there is kind of all the fur. It's all the rough cut fur, same, same kind of deal, right? Kind of lower grade stuff. We don't plane anything that's back here. So yeah, we get, the wood gets brought down here and then uh, we have a guy that comes and scales it. And then basically I'm the buckerman, so I buck all the logs for the size to put on the mill, whatever we need, right? If we have orders for like different kind of people, what they wanted, they would you know give us their measurements and then we'd cut whatever they want, or they'd just come down here and pick through what we have for inventory. And then, yeah, either, so the high grade wood mostly goes through the kiln, so it gets kiln dried, and then usually that turns into planed wood. So we end up planing it and then it gets stored in one of these sheds so it stays dry, right? Try to keep the dust off it and all that. So try to keep it tarped as much as possible. And some of the wood we do ship out. We had a couple orders that go to Calgary and different parts of the country. So people building houses, that's usually when they come down here because we have a different variety of wood, right? It is a little more expensive than most places, I think, but we try to keep the quality high. So we try to separate as much as we can, like best from the worst kind of thing. It's kind of a smaller mill, right? It only has, we only have nine people 
working here officially and then you know two guys for cleanup that come on the weekends yeah basically most of what we do is kind of all local you know as far as we go is kind of like rosalind and all that we do deliver wood as well but we don't go too far generally and uh the, like the orders we get they're never too big right it's never a giant volume of wood yeah we seem to do all right it's kind of a community driven place like everything the forest and all that where the logs come from it's all part of the community so it's the hair proctor co-op is what it's called and uh yeah, so basically this is kind of it. There's not a lot of people living here, so it's not easy to, or it's not hard to find workers that are actually willing to work, right? It's close to home for everybody. Everybody that works here either lives just in Belfort or in Proctor. So it's like probably about a thousand people or so. It's not, it's not that many, right? It's, it's really small, but it's nice. It keeps it away from big corporations kind of thing, right? It's a nice place to work. I'm someone who doesn't know a lot about the forestry industry. Parts of what he's saying there sound just like what I would expect. But then some of the things he was mentioning is not exactly, you know, fitting with my preconceptions about what forestry in Canada is all about. Um, And I think probably for a lot of people outside of forestry-focused regions, you know, there's this idea that it's one of those Canada-building primary industries um, from the past that stays the same over time. (laughs) But I think that we're going to dispel some of those myths over the course of this episode. Yeah, and it's we're going to talk about some. You know, it's you know what's really funny. I never thought of this before. It just occurred to me. Uh, my great grandfather was a logger in BC. No way. Yeah, he um, he left his family a long time ago and went to BC. Lived to be ninety something and uh, came back. Appeared out of nowhere. Uh, came for a visit and uh, when in his nineties. Uh, just to meet his kids who he hasn't seen his whole life. So he had left from Croatia? Yeah. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. Anyway, so, right, we are going to talk about the future of forestry. Everything from community-supported and locally-focused operations to emerging forest management practices to the changing way that we value trees and how climate change is affecting all of it. Right. Okay, so we're going to start with Greg Lay. We talked to Greg for our episode on high-speed internet in rural communities already, and he had spent some time as the mayor of Caslow, so that's why we had talked to him then. But uh, really, his lifelong career was in forestry. And Greg was one of your favorite people. He was. My name is Greg Lay, and uh, I've lived in rural communities, mostly forest communities, uh, most of my life. I'm 76 years old now, and I started logging when I was 16. And... So I made enough money logging to go to university, and I went to University of British Columbia and uh, got a degree in forestry, uh, although I did take two years out and go and practice in forestry in New Zealand and Papua New Guinea and came back and finished my degree and then ended up in forestry in the Philippines and Malaysia. So I kind of have a a global view of of some of the world's forests. I've also been in Russia and looked at forestry and in some small countries in South America. So I'm sort of a, my life has been one of fulfillment through forestry. This guy has so much experience in forestry all over the world and he has developed such deep, deep sense of connection to forests in general. Mm -hmm. Um, He's an industry guy through and through. But he has also developed this really philosophical view of forests and what they do for us. I actually want to play that little bit of a clip where he talks about that. I I think it's really fascinating. The other, I would say, culturally that's interesting, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a forester in Russia or a forester in Croatia. Foresters 
<coughs> have this sense of connection. Uh, whether you're walking through a forest in Croatia or you're walking through a forest in Stanley Park, there's that sense of, oh, trees, animals, uh, herbs, shrubs, you know? So it's a very, for foresters, there's kind of this rural aspect of a bond with the forest in terms of it, us as human beings as a species. The forest brings to us a sense of place. The forest is a, is a sanctuary for people and uh, it's an important sanctuary. The forest allows people to have a place that they can recreate in, but it also produces a product. And we're struggling with issues around the ecology of uh, forestry at the moment, especially in terms of climate change. And so at this, part, at this stage in my life, I'm spending a lot of time thinking about issues around the managed forest versus the natural forest. So now you have to try and define what is the natural forest. And, and one of my favorite professors, actually, who I met a while back, in, informed me there are no more natural forests. So how we define and use the forest is becoming more uh, important to try and understand. Clearly he has a deep sense of responsibility to the concept of forests in general. And he's also quite adamant about the need for us to get better at managing forests. So climate change is a big reason for that. Uh, and he discussed, uh, you know, like things like better fire protection, better disease protection in the context of all this change that's happening within this, within the, this uh, industry. And I really have so much respect for him because he studied forest practices on the ground mm -hmm. around the world. Yeah. And um, one of the examples he really wanted to share with us um, was the way that forests are managed in Sweden. One of my favorite examples was in Sweden. They look at an 80-year rotation. So they plant their trees, 2,600 trees per hectare. And then in the first 20 years, they go out and they remove 600 of the ones that aren't doing so well. and may have so. So now they're down to uh, 1,800 trees. Then they go out at age 40 and they get saw, some small saw logs and pulp logs out of that forest. So now they're down to about 1,200 stems per hectare. And then at age 60, they go out there and they take out another 400 stems per hectare and they're getting more saw logs than they are pulpwood. And then that final forest is a beauty to be, for a forester, a beauty to behold, okay? Uh, so that's a managed force. So I think we need to dedicate areas to managing at that level where the investment results in, 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 in farming trees um, and, and then have enough areas where, the support, where, where, where we'll allow natural forests to function so we can study that over time. So then you get the issues of visuals. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know what urban people think when they see a forest. Would they know a natural forest from a managed forest? I really, I, I really don't think. Then you get the impacts on wildlife, you know, and, and that's a growing concern. I think we need to recognize that, uh, you know, get, get back to the concept like they have in Europe of tree farming, uh, but recognize that there are areas that we leave to uh, evolve as nature will permit. 
recognizing that climate change is going to change the forests that we have now. Yeah, so here in Canada, you know, I think a lot of us have the sense that forest is everywhere and we really don't think about it too much in terms of how what it's comprised or um, what's going on in there. So this is really interesting. Yeah, and to be honest, I probably grew up around managed forests. Just I was probably never aware of it. And that's a big piece of what Greg thinks is missing when he talks about the forestry. He believes that we really need a public education program that starts very early. Hmm. There's a public education uh, piece here that uh, should start at the schools, should start right in schools, especially in rural areas. And every school kid, uh, by the time they get to grade three, should have planted a tree in a community forest or in a community. And just a little side story here, I actually took my children out at a young age and we planted some trees and I'm going to take them back where these now seedlings are now growing into a managed forest. They're improved seed stock, they're well spaced. I, you know, this is almost embarrassing, but I don't think I ever planted a tree. Have you planted a tree? Yeah, definitely. However, he's talking about, I think, trees being planted as part of sort of a an ecosystem or um, in public spaces, whereas I certainly have planted a lot of trees, you know, for my own family's use. And I remember as a kid planting a, a tree as a memorial to my dog, Barney. Things like that happen. But maybe not so much in terms of the idea of trees as this sort of like public resource. That said, I was a brownie. I was a guide. <laughs> and I was for a moment a pathfinder. Then, uh, you know, teenagehood kicked in and I was more interested in nose rings. But... Um, you can't get through those programs without planting some trees and without walking through a couple of trees too. You know, hiking, camping, all of that stuff. And I kind of think those are the sorts of programs that Greg would probably be pretty supportive of. Um, they got me outside with my hands dirty, surrounded by, you know, the forest. Yeah, and I mean, Greg and I talked about so much more. I, I think that we're going to have, we're going to hear from Greg again in one of the future episodes. So, we, yeah, we were actually thinking about doing a whole episode on forest fires, and that will be a chance to uh, hear one more time from our friend Greg. Yes, and he had such interesting things to say about forest fires, actually. I, I feel I learned so much. Anyway, that's a future episode. Yep. For now, tell me about Filomena de Lima. You caught up with her just between two sessions at the Nelson Conference, and she told you a little bit about the project on the future of forestry. Yeah, so our longtime listeners know Philomena well. You talked to her about migrant farm workers in the UK for an episode a while back. That's right. Uh huh. And she is a professor at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland. And she's also leading a cooperative study between Scotland, BC, and uh, the state of Oregon in the US. I had just a few minutes with her in the conference center lobby in Nelson, so forgive me the background noise. But this is how she described the project she's working on forestry and the ways in which a diverse group of people might access forestry mm -hmm. because you know forestry is seen as very important to health and well-being mm -hmm. and so on and the forestry commission which is the sort of governance uh, it's not quite a government agency but it's very closely linked to government um, was interested in uh, diversifying the sorts of people that use the forestry as a recreational um, kind of tool or aspect, not tool, but 
for recreation persons. Yeah. yeah. Well, what do they mean by forest mm -hmm. and forestry? What does that conceptually mean? You know, mm -hmm. what does a forest mean to a forester? And, mm -hmm. and um, so I came from it from a very conceptual point of view as a, as a sociologist, curious about the different ways in which people talked about, you know, they talk about forestry, sometimes they talk about countryside, mm -hmm. and they all, do they mean the same thing? Right. Yeah, and given that forestry is seen as so important in issues related to climate change, I was kind of interested in, well, so how are they incorporating these other dimensions like health and well-being and climate change issues? You know, and how are they training people to work in a sector which crosses these different boundaries? That project sounded so interesting. I actually managed to track down Dr. Sarah Breen, who is Philomena's Canadian collaborator. And Sarah spends a lot of time thinking about what forestry is going to look like 5, 10, 30 years from now. I'll let Sarah introduce herself. I'm Dr. Sarah Breen. I am one of the researchers with Selkirk College's Applied Research and Innovation Center, as well as the Columbia Basin Rural Development Institute. So there are two different pieces there. And uh, also president of the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation. So you can imagine Sarah was um, rather busy in Austin. Right. And really, her work is focused on the BC context, right? Very much so. And she says that's particularly interesting, partially because of the degree of collaboration that takes place in southern BC forests. Forestry looks very different across our province. So we are focusing on the southeast corner because what the tree species that we have, the physical constraints that we have, these are all very different here than they would be, say, on the coast or Vancouver Island. Um, and so we have a wide range of tree species. We have very steep hillsides, which uh, creates, you know, physical challenges in terms of getting machinery up and down. Um, we're a very rural area with a lot of mountainous passes. So, you know, everything from transport in and out, like we, we deal with the constraints that you would typically have in a, in a rural place. What I have gathered so far is that we are uh, in southeastern BC, we have a number of things that are unique, uh, which often happens in this area. We still have a lot of small to medium-sized uh, operations that, like whether that's a mill or like a lumber mill, um, timber harvesters, those types of, of small operations still exist here. So we have, there's an organization, for example, called the Interior Lumber Manufacturers Association. And that is um, a place where all of these small to medium-sized companies get together and they're able to to work collaboratively and say, you know, for example, one mill uses a certain type of wood and another mill doesn't. But the way this is, is really complex, so I'll, I'll try and, and get this out in one piece. But the way forestry works in BC is it's on a tenure system. And so if you're assigned a specific plot of land, all those trees belong to you. But what if your mill only uses one of those tree species? So they have the Interior Lumber Manufacturers Association talks about getting the right log to the right mill. So it makes those connections so that, you know, when you only want tree species A, but the guy down the road wants tree species B, then you can do a trade. So you're both getting the most amount of wood. So we have those small players here, as well as the larger players like Interfor and Canfor. As she's mentioned, there, there really is a real localness to the way that 
the forestry is operating in the region. But I think sometimes people make the mistake of equating rural and local with sort of backwater, and that's totally incorrect. She actually mentioned that technology plays a really significant role in some of these uh, forestry-focused rural areas. Technology change becomes huge in this particular landscape. So if you can imagine with something like LIDAR, which is um, like an aerial photo I, that was, somebody's going to get angry at me for how I describe that, but it's it's a really high tech aerial photo, and it allows them to look at large tracts of land. They can remove the the forest canopy from from the the photos digitally, and it allows them to identify the tree species. It al- allows them to identify the elevation changes. So you can plan roads, you can plan cut blocks, you can do. All of this planning that used to take a lot of man hours and a lot of boots in the bush, a lot faster and a lot easier, and it makes things very straightforward. There's amazing implications for these technology changes, whether it's planting. So once you've planted an area, you have to check on it. So you can use drones now to fly in and check on an area. You you can do all the things that I did in my uh, undergraduate forestry timber cruising classes. They now have iPads to do these things where we were slogging through bush with chains. Like, it's, it's completely changing. There is a lot more going on in the forestry industry and in the forests than, than meets the eye. It's not just a matter of waiting for the trees to grow, mm. but the industry has changed dramatically over the last decade or two decades. And that has an impact on how things are done, but also on the people who are employed in the sector and who live in those areas. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that is it pretty much echoes a statement that farmer, Southwestern Ontario farmer Lindsay Menick made in our episode a couple episodes back about going back to the farm. She was really saying, you know, people don't understand the change that has happened in some of these sort of old industries. Things like forestry and farming aren't just about physical labor anymore. You could probably add the fishery here in Newfoundland and Labrador to that list. Oh, for sure. You know, if you're interested in electronics, robotics, engineering, commerce, business, there are opportunities. And it's not just that there's opportunities. You almost have to be there. And that's also somewhat of a problem because as, as Sarah sort of talked about it and warned us, is that the people who have traditionally worked in forestry roles may not be the same people who will be able to take advantage of these new opportunities. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So I'm going to play a bit longer clip because she speaks about it quite eloquently. The forestry sector, similar to mining and, and other natural resource sectors, um, has a reputation, uh, Heather Hall would call it the three Ds, the dirty, dangerous, and dying, that these are not industries that people want to go into. And and the more that I sit down and talk with folks about the future of forestry, the more I'm realizing that this is, this is so far from what's true. Like, these are really high-tech industries that have v- very good safety records as a result of this new technology. They're increasing efficiency in a global market that's ever more competitive, and, and it's allowing them to, to stay alive. They're, they're able to change their operations quite quickly, and it's also changing the people that they need. You know, maybe they don't, like, there's less general laborers anymore. There's less positions for people coming out of high school, and those positions will unlikely exist, you know, that they can mechanize them. But if you are um, a GIS person or a remote sensing person, if you are a millwright or a 
uh, registered professional forester, obviously, registered forest technicians, people who do computer programming of any kind, all of those skills are in demand. And now what I am also hearing is we're at a really challenging point from a workforce perspective because we have people who have been laid off, but they don't necessarily have the skills to step into the positions that now exist. So we have that people without jobs, jobs without people. We see that everywhere, and it's certainly it's not unique to BC. It's it's across the country right now. We're in that that's a transition period, and and it goes internationally as well. It's a it's a pretty common challenge. Um, but in this area, I think I think culturally and and socially, it's really challenging if you're struggling to stay in a place and you've been laid off or you can't find work to see outsiders, which you know, a lot of us are outsiders to see us moving in. And, you know, like, yeah, it, it is it is really challenging. So there's then you start getting into sociocultural and economic impacts and the changing landscapes of our communities. So it spreads pretty wide. So there's definitely this disconnect. And we see it right across resource industries. And I think Sarah is right. It, it's really complicated. Through my work with the Harris Center here, I travel to a lot of rural communities that tend to be fisheries communities, mm-hmm. right? And you have these families and communities who have been working in these industries, like forestry, mining, fisheries, for generations. And they're suddenly living in a very different time and a very different mm-hmm. landscape. And they're so committed to the idea of staying where they are. And often they're in quite remote locations. But, you know, some of the things that have changed around them are making it really challenging. Yeah. So. Are there any big new ideas or, you know, challenges on the horizon that Sarah wanted to talk about? She talked about several things that are developing right now in the forestry sector. And much of it has to do with innovation and efficiency, of course, like in any industry. Forestry industry around the world is trying to use as much of a tree as possible. And that includes the leftovers from the logging operations. It's not unlike fisheries. One of the popular solutions that Sarah mentioned is Cogen. Hold on, okay. So what does Cogen stand for? Cogen is, sorry, cogeneration. It's uh, using a byproduct of an industry to create energy. Okay, so that's interesting. I do know about Cogen in the context of Newfoundland and Labrador. We've even seen people looking at like fish plant waste and figuring out how to make that be useful in other ways. And the most recent thing I've heard is actually at the big mill in Cornerbrook, where our Grenfell campus here at Memorial is working with them to look at using some of those waste products to to generate power. And that's very common around the world. So Sarah gave us um, a couple of examples and kind of explained what are some of the challenges when it comes to cogeneration specifically in British Columbia? Mm. So we talk a lot about this technology and innovation piece and people are excited for, for all the potential that exists. And so something that I've heard about, something that's a bit of an unexplored territory in BC is uh, they would call it residual fiber, which is basically, or you know, more colloquially, a slash pile. So if you drive past a, a clear cut area, there's gonna be a big pile of sticks and stumps and, and things that aren't necessarily merchantable timber or they didn't meet specifications. So you have this big pile of stuff. Slash piles can be burned, but for obvious climate change implications, that's not going to be happening anymore, or it shouldn't be happening anymore. And there, so the changes to those rules 
But at the same time, what do you do with this? Now, in other locations, uh, say there's places in the United States where they, they burn it in, a, say, a cogeneration plant. They do that in northern Ontario as well and generate electricity that offsets the cost of the industry. Now, perhaps somebody who's not from here would say, oh, we'll just build a cogen plant. Except we have well over 90% of British Columbia's energy is, is hydropower. And it's on a price point much, much cheaper than you could, you couldn't build a cogen plant to make that make sense. And so there's a lot of people are looking forward both as a challenge, but as an opportunity, what do we do with this residual fiber? What products can be made out of it? How do we can we chip it and turn it into stuff that people put in their gardens? Do we sell it to pulp mills? There's all of these things are happening. So that's a an opportunity, taking a challenge and turning it into something good. Right. So the relative cheapness and also sustainability of the energy system that is already in effect in that province makes it really not, um, you know, that's not where we need to be looking. But uh, as Sarah mentioned, maybe there's other ways to deal with these products that are already going to be produced and are kind of just lying around at this point. Yeah, exactly. And it's just very optimistic that there are other options and that the future of forestry in interior BC is quite bright. She does think that that forestry is going to look very different from what we have today. I think there's a huge potential for for the industry to continue into into the future and I think people really want that and they're just looking for ways to to make it happen. It does it's one of our bedrock industries. It supports a huge portion of our economy not just directly but now as and this is something else that I've heard a lot from folks in the industry is we're looking at a very different playing field than we were decades ago. My parents are both foresters. When they were working in the forestry sector, it was, you know, here's your timber block, you cut these trees, you get them out, it costs this much. That plot of land is worth economically the number of trees that are on it. Things are very different now. The values of our forest are not just the the economic value of those trees there's recreation value you have environmental uh whether it's habitat or um other environmental factors first nations um use as well like there's all of these other value pieces that come in that go beyond timber and it makes for a really complex landscape when you're planning when you're doing policy but what i heard from folks what i've heard so far is that this is not something that is being seen as, wow, that's a pain. It's, this is a challenge. I like dealing with it. I like dealing with people. We are all about figuring this out. You know, yes, we may have differences, but we, we're going to sit down. We're going to do what we can. We're going to, you know, like have those discussions that may be difficult. You're always going to have people who are at extremes. Some people believe that no tree should ever be cut. Other people believe that every tree should be cut like the, you know, like cut it down, pave it over type of a thing. But almost all of the people that I've talked to are sitting in the middle going, how do we best figure out how to balance everybody on this landscape and make it so that we've got our jobs, but we're protecting our environment because, and I think this comes a lot from having those smaller players, the small to medium sized players is they live here. 
they work here, their families are here, like, and the that's not to say that the multinational companies aren't good. They they absolutely they follow the rules. They're all by and large amazing companies. But when you have we have companies that have a very deep connection to this area and they're really invested in making sure that that there's a there is a tomorrow. Interesting. It makes sense. When conversations are being held at a community level, there's more nuance. Uh, there's lived experience and there is that really broad sense of what is the value of a forest. And so that, what is it for? Yeah, who who gets to go there and what do we use it for? So there are lots of ways to value a forest, and we're also hearing that there are many different ways to manage it. And we're going to share some of our conversation with someone who's doing something really quite different from the traditional model of forestry now. That's right. So we are going to introduce you to Eric Leslie. If you remember the sound from the beginning of this episode at the Harap Sawmill. Eric is a forester and forestry consultant who manages Harrop Proctor Community Forest outside of Nelson, BC. And uh, I'll let him tell us what community forest is all about. A community forest is different things in different provinces and different parts of the world, but in BC, when we say community forest, we mean uh, a form of tenure on public land where the community, a community organization has the rights and responsibilities to manage the forest for timber and other purposes uh, according to the priorities of the community and the benefits uh, financial and otherwise of that management are they accrue to the community and not to a private company or government. It sounds as though there's a fundamentally communal sense of the value of the forest in these situations. Absolutely. There is certainly the business side Mm -hmm. to it as well, but the quality of life for the people living around is always the main consideration. So the the Harrop Proctor Community Forest is uh, named that because of the communities of Harrop and Proctor, which are little villages on the shore of of, uh, Kootenai Lake that a combined population of six or seven hundred and and access from a cable ferry uh, from the highway just outside of Nelson. And so those are the communities that are in charge of managing the public land behind the communities, behind meaning the hillsides, the mountainsides above the community where the, where the key thing is that the, wa- the water that everybody drinks comes from the mountain straight into people's houses unfiltered and uh, that's that's how that's how the community forest is defined by those watersheds if i was walking around would i be able to tell the difference between a community forest and a natural forest or one that was managed using more traditional forestry methods i'm kind of picturing you know a dichotomy you know there's a sort of like <laughs> national park with uh, you know a ranger bear (laughs) Um, but then there's also this sort of image that a lot of probably uh you know less informed further from uh further from the source canadians would have which would be that sort of clear-cut image would we be able to tell the difference that's a great question here's what eric said when i asked him whether there is a visible difference on the ground they might not look different on the ground in in the because there are over 50 community forests in BC and each community is different has different priorities and those priorities might play out in looking differently on the ground there's different ecosystems and whatever uh, 
different appropriateness as far as um, what's whether you should cut a lot of trees or not so many trees or whatever. In Herop Proctor, uh, we uh, do quite a few of what you might call alternative forestry practices, a lot of partial cutting, uh, retention of a fair number of trees. And uh, so on the ground, our practices do look different. Uh, generally speaking, there's more trees around uh, when we've been logging, uh, although it's not always appropriate to leave lots of trees if it's dead pine or whatever. Uh, the other thing that's different is, you know, forestry isn't just about what does the cut block look like on the ground, but it's like what comes before that, you know, which areas are, do you go into uh, or do you not go into, um, <clears throat> how are decisions made, uh, how, how, is, how are the priorities manifested, you know, in the planning process as well. So it's, it's, there's, the, there's the practices which everyone knows what a clear cut looks like or doesn't, right? But there's other things that are not immediately visible to the eye that might distinguish a community forest from, from another form of tenure. Right. So there's a whole lot more happening that, you know, you couldn't necessarily just see by looking. Yeah. And those practices would be different from community forest to community right. forest, from industrial operation to industrial operation. The real notable aspect of Harrow Proctor Community Forest is that it is essentially run as a social enterprise. And I'll let Eric explain the particular form that that social enterprise took in Harrow Proctor. The Harrow Proctor Community Forest is a cooperative. It's a not-for-profit co-op. And the members of the co-op are all local residents. So for 25 bucks, you become a lifetime member of the co-op. You, you do not receive uh, financial benefits from being a member if the co-op makes money, as we do make some money. It either gets <clears throat> reinvested into the operations of the co-op, like expanding our sawmilling operations or whatever, or, uh, and there are uh, uh, grants given, uh, donations given community, to community groups in nonprofits within the community. So uh, that's how it looks like for us. I consider it a social enterprise. We're, we're, we're fulfilling a uh, a social and environmental mandate through our business. That's why the business exists because of environmental concerns and and to create local jobs. So that's pretty much a definition of social enterprise, right? Yep. And as he mentions, environmental stewardship is a key element that has brought all these people together. And he actually has quite an interesting story about the history of how it all begun. Want to hear that? Yeah, sure. The so-called war in the woods of the 1990s in BC around the time of Clackwood Sound and other major protests. Uh, there were protests going on here too in the Kootenays at that time and uh, in the 90s and even before. And there, so the there were a lot of folks in the Herat Proctor area who did not want uh, industrial logging in their watersheds. And they were willing to blockade roads and uh, make a stink, make a stink uh, about that. And and so there there was there were blockades of uh, a road that was going in to to the Harrop area in the 90s, and uh, it was also during a parks campaign to where BC was creating some new parks at that time. And there was a long campaign, quite political, and eventually a park was created in this area, but it, it didn't include the Harrop Proctor area. It included Nelson's watershed of Five Mile Creek and another drainage, uh, but not the Harrop Proctor uh, watersheds. So 
The War in the Woods was the preface, preface to the community forest creation. So when the park was created but excluded the Harrop Proctor communities, the folks who had been working on the parks campaign, many of them, uh, looked for a plan B, uh, which was to uh, accept that there was going to be logging in the watersheds, and but to try to somehow manage it themselves. And luckily at that time, the local, the provincial government had a pilot program called the Community Forest Pilot Program or something like that. This came about because of public pressure during the 90s to diversify the forest sector, which is still highly, highly centralized, arguably more consolidated with fewer companies than it ever has been. But you know, so a community forest is sort of a, a small counterbalance to that, to that ongoing dynamic. So Herr Proctor applied and was awarded a community forest. As a pilot, as an experiment, a lot of people didn't think these bunch of sort of wacko enviros would ever cut a tree. In fact, the local MLA said so at the time, even though he was sort of supportive. And now we've been in operation since then. We have cut down a few trees and we have a business that's developed. You know, it wasn't the original business plan was, you know, it's not really exactly the one we're following, but key elements of it are actually still there, like a value-added sawmill, local employment, that kind of stuff. Eric has brought us into, you know, talking about the environment. It's a, that the desire for sustainability and for, you know, positive environmental practices was such a major uh, driving force behind the development of the community forest. But I don't even know if at that time in the 1990s, you know, and I remember, I remember those protests. Do you recall that? No, I didn't come here until 95. Oh, so it was, you know, we were seeing this on the news on a nightly basis. But at that time, uh, you know, we were worried about acid rain. The specter of climate change in terms of the sort of general, you know, understanding of, you know, big issues, it wasn't really there at that point. And now, obviously, it's here. And that was something that pretty much everyone we spoke with brought up. So there's new dynamics. There's this sense of urgency happening in terms of climate change and forestry. So let's talk a little bit about about how the community forest is addressing that stuff. And they're certainly focusing on climate change these days a lot. And uh, Eric was um, quite knowledgeable about it. And he spoke quite eloquently about it. Right now, I'm I'm working on a, a climate change adaptation project for the community forest. Uh, and what that uh, project is doing is is working on developing a proactive approach to a changing climate. And what does a changing climate mean in the Kootenai ecosystems? It means generally uh, droughtier summers, more forest fires. We've always had dry summers and forest fires. All of our forests around here regenerated from fires pretty much 100 years ago. So that's nothing new. But um, I think that the, the, when the community forest started, in the 90s, the thinking was, well, this is this is cedar hemlock forest down here, and, and the, the forest will naturally tend towards old growth cedar hemlock characteristics. And it's true that in the absence of disturbance on many sites, they will. But in the absence of disturbance is the key thing. And, and disturbance is natural, ecosystems are dynamic, and we have to sort of realize that ecosystems are going to always be changing and we insert ourselves into that but there isn't always like a want a deterministic formula where it's going to become older and older and older and all we need to do is sort of get out of the way we can get out of the way we don't need to be there but if we get out of the way it isn't necessarily going to to all succeed to old growth 
forest, which is great for water. Old growth forest is, you know, great for stable water supplies, but it's, it's just not going to happen uh, everywhere. And uh, with a changing climate, they're projecting five to ten times more average area burned on any given year or decade. Five to ten times. Five to fifty times. Wow. It's like, oh my goodness, I, I can barely get my head around five times. Mm -hmm. So this summer, we had a large forest fire. The first major large forest fire in the community forest in probably 80 years or even 100 years. It was bound to come. We've been talking about it for years that, you know, eventually we're going to get our fire. And we did. This summer we had a lightning strike at the back of Harrop Creek and it grew over seven weeks to be over 3,000 hectares. Uh, not all of that's in the community forest, but most of it is. So about 20, 25% of our community forest uh, burned at different intensities and, and whatever, but it was a major fire and it's actually still burning. Uh, and it consumed most of our summer uh, dealing with it and the community was on evacuation alert for three weeks it just came off now with the rains but it was a reminder to those who might not remember the fire of 2003 which also started to threaten the community forest uh, but didn't really come in too far it's a reminder that yeah we are living in a forest that that will burn and, uh, and it'll do lots of other things too, but the most obvious tangible thing is it will burn and it can threaten our houses and everything else. And our watersheds, you know, the, 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 and high intensity burns can do things to the soils, uh, that the hydrophobic soils, which will not absorb water for several years. And then you get erosion runoff, potential landslides and, and all kinds of scary things. So, so we've realized that forest management, management can be a tool to mitigate some of those risks. So you're right. Everybody we talked to talked about climate change. And there's this real sense that with the climate change, things are changing fast mm -hmm. and we need to be prepared and flexible for those changes. The thing is, as Eric mentioned, when you're talking about climate change and forestry, part of what you're talking about is inevitably forest fire. Yeah. So here's um, just one more short clip on climate change, because I think it was such a big part of the conversation. I think we should talk a little bit more. About okay, so let's hear Sarah Breen on that now. Yeah. When I ask people what the challenges are that face the industry right now, climate change comes up and then all these other factors that lead to climate change come up. So, you know, a number of people have said that you do your best to plan and then mother nature just turns around and says, okay, well, that's not happening. And, you know, whether that's a bad forest fire year, which we have a record setting forest fire year this year, it's changed everything. So some of these blocks that would have been merchantable timber are now going to have to be logged for salvage. So those are two very different things. We had the pine beetle epi epidemic, and so that changes, again, what you can do with the wood, how you go in and deal with it, what, how do you do the remediation and the planting afterwards. Like it, Every time Mother Nature moves, other things need to be accounted for, and with climate change, we'll see more of that. The tree species will change. Uh, our water cycle will change. It'll impact the species that we have and how they grow, and all of these factors that looking forward, it's it's a real challenge. And everyone is 
is very aware of that challenge. Like if you were to drive around right now and look into the the lumber mill yards, you would see empty yards. There are never empty yards, but nobody's been able to log because a spark right now and we'd all go up in flames. It's it's um it's been a very challenging year and I don't think that's going to go away. Yeah. So, you know, change is probably the constant that we can expect over the next, you know, decades in the forestry industry particularly related to the climate change issue. Yeah, and it's not just the industry. Sarah was very adamant that that change is coming for the communities Mm. located in those areas, Mm -hmm. and they will have to adapt to these rapidly changing conditions. Change is happening, and change is happening very fast. We need to adapt faster. And I mean, it, it, it applies to the forestry sector, but it applies to everything else as well. And I think that's, that is an important lesson. And people need to be comfortable with that. Like, I know that as human beings, change is inherently difficult to manage, but it's not going anywhere and it's going to get faster. So get comfortable. <laughs> okay. I know you are dying <laughs> to do your favorite part of Roto Roots. Yeah, you know, on the map, it's our segment where we ask real rural people from real rural places, what puts your town on the map? I love it. It brings the voices of the people who we want to chat with. I'm so sorry. Hey, where are you going with this? We don't have time. What? We don't have time to do the justice to that awesome story you want to share. We don't have time because I have a couple more clips. I want to play for you about forestry. Okay, boy, and they better be pretty darn good. They are. They're really good. And it's actually Sarah. <laughs> so, you know, I interviewed Sarah in Nelson. Yeah. And then she mentioned that in October, she was going to go to Scotland, kind of see what Scottish forests... Right, where are. Philomena is based. Exactly. So, she went to Scotland in October, and uh, she said that maybe we should chat when she comes back. Right. And then she sent me this email... And she said that her head exploded with ideas. Okay, so if her head is exploding, then I guess we'll just have to sit on our awesome meat-related on-the-map segment. I'll give you that it's an absolutely fabulous story. (laughs) But next episode, we'll have time next episode. So what made Sarah's head explode? Well, here you go. And then there's just size, generally. You know, we burned more trees this year then Scotland has, period, the end. So, Did you hear wow. that? Yeah, we that's nuts. Bird more trees than Scotland has. So what else did she find fascinating while she was there? Oh, she had so many examples. Here is, uh, here is one I particularly liked. They're trying to add tree cover in Scotland, uh, and they've been doing planting to achieve that, and that gives them, you know, so your trees go on a rotation, that way you know how much you're about to harvest, and... There was a period under Margaret Thatcher with, you know, neoliberal policies where they were planting less and they're about to come into a harvesting gap because of that. And so they're talking about timber supply because they're about to essentially run out of trees to harvest, which is, as a Canadian, a very hard concept to even think about. Is it crazy? Wow. Yeah. So... The other thing that really kind of 
messed with her head. Uh, and I should mention, Sarah sounds a little bit different because we talked to her over Skype. Of course. Um, so you hear that little bit of a computer sound there. Um, but one of the things that um, really messed with her head in Scotland is that in Scotland, the trees were referred to as a crop, which sounded just wrong to somebody living in a forest <laughs> in BC. Right. And what she found particularly fascinating is how different the conversations about things like climate change were. When climate change came up from a, a BC or Canadian perspective, it was often around adaptation to the management of the industry. How are we going to manage forests when there's more fires? How are we going to deal with the fires? How are we going to deal with pests? Um, just that that clear adaptation piece. Whereas when climate change was discussed when I was talking with people in Scotland, it was on the, the back end or the mitigation end, if you will. So the conversations were more around moving towards forestry and uh, an increase in the forest industry because it's a renewable resource, um, because from an energy perspective, biofuels is more um, carbon friendly or uh, it's better than burning coal. So that's not a conversation in BC because we're hydroelectric. And then they're also talking about forestry for the use in trying to get people to use wood in building more because wood has a lower carbon footprint than steel or concrete and so you can really see the differences in the two countries and the background and what they're concerned about where we're all on adaptation and what's it doing to our resource and they're all on mitigation and how can we lower our carbon footprint. The contexts are, are pretty much completely different. And, and just the total approach to forests, it's, you know, you can really see the socioeconomics and the cultural aspects of forests coming into play here, too. So, and I would also assume that in this really different situation, the management practices must vary pretty broadly compared to BC. Oh, it's crazy. Sarah talked about just the sheer efficiency of the Scottish system because they have so few trees. They're very careful um, how they manage that forest, how they use every part of the tree. So when you come to a sort of a clear-cut area in Scotland, you would never find these giant slush piles of debris because they actually have ways to use mm. most of it. Right. So right now, where they are in this whole project between Canada and United States and Scotland mm -hmm. is kind of figuring out what are some of the lessons that they can share with each other. Right, because with all the differences, you know, there's going to be a lot that isn't going to be applicable across different geographical regions. So, I mean, I'm sure there's quite a bit of work in figuring out contextually what could be useful and what probably isn't going to fly. Yeah, exactly. And those lessons, Sarah said, seem to be falling into sort of three groups around technology use, around climate change adaptation and mitigation, and then learning about actual forestry practices. So between Eric and Forrest, Greg, Sarah, and Philomena, we got a pretty decent high-level overview of the forestry industry in Canada, but I think that, I don't want to say we're only touching the treetops, but there's a lot more to say. There is. You know what? I think, I think we did okay. I certainly feel that I learned a lot because I knew so little about forestry. And it's such an important sector in this country, not just economically, but culturally as well. You got it. So, okay, we didn't get to do on the map this week. I'm saying right now, I'm putting my foot down. It's going to happen in the next episode. I promise it will happen in the next episode.
Okay, so you've just listened to Raw Roots. And Raw Roots is a production of the Harris Center at Memorial University of Newfoundland, and we record this show at the CHMR studios on St. John's campus of Memorial University. And we do this whole thing in partnership with the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and the Rural Policy Learning Commons International Partnership. And the show is funded through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and we love talking to people who listen to the show, you can do that on Facebook or you can do it through our website, which is www.ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. And if you listen to this episode on your community or campus radio station, let us know what you thought of the show and if you have a community or campus radio station in your community and in your area please encourage them to carry on the show it's completely free for them to do so yep and if you prefer to listen through technology you can always find us on soundcloud itunes or any of your favorite podcast apps i'm Brian first and i'm rebecca Cahoe, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with another episode thanks for listening <laughs>